whatever you say to us is good for us. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. So if, if you are visiting with us today, then you should know that over the last three weeks or so, our church has been looking at a series of letters found in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapters two and three. So if you have access to a Bible, you might want to go there and uh, chapter three, the passage that you heard read earlier is where we'll be. And although these letters were given from the Lord Jesus to specific churches in particular historical circumstances, we believe that they still speak to us today and that our church has much to learn from them. And so we've traveled over the last three weeks to six churches of Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. And there's another zoomed out picture of it so you have an idea where in the world this, this happened. And we've seen that each church receives something of a health report from Jesus regarding what they're doing well and need to continue in, and then some things that are going pretty terribly and the disastrous consequences that will come if they don't make some radical changes. And of course, as we study these letters, you can't help but read, as you read them, to think about our own church and to think about the churches of our city. You know, if we were to get a, a health report letter from Jesus, or if he were to come here and visit us and sit down and have a little doctor visit with us, you know, what, what, what would he say? What would he say about us? What would he say about the churches in our, in our city? And that can make you a little nervous, right? Because, I mean, just doctor's visits in general tend to make people kind of nervous, right? You, even if you feel fine, you may go in and find out that you're not. Um, or my three-year-old son, you know, he's always worried about if, if he's going to have to get a shot when he goes. And some adults I hear are worried about that too, but that's okay. But uh, growing up, uh, my doctor was actually my dad. My, my father was, was my doctor. And so if I had to go into his office for a shot or a checkup or some sort of procedure, I always felt like I had a pretty good chance of making it out of there okay. You know, like... He's got some skin in the game, and I am going to be just fine, right? And so the good news for us today, too, is that our, our doctor who comes to visit us loves us like a father. And so anything he uncovers or diagnoses us with, it's only for our good, though it might be painful. Uh, so today we come to the last of these church health reports, the letter to Laodicea. And Jesus is going to lay out for this church their condition, he's going to tell them you have, you have a condition, and then the cause of that condition and the cure for it. So a condition, a cause, and a cure. So first, the condition. Let's go back to verse 14, the beginning of our passage. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. We'll stop here for just a second. As we've already noted, if you've seen the other letters, you know that there's always some sort of introductory section where Jesus leaves a calling card of sorts. He's telling them something about himself and why they should listen to him. It's kind of like why your doctors put their diplomas out in their office or they put their credentials on their website. So you can see that this person is going to treat me like they know what they're talking about and I should listen to them. And so Jesus introduces himself as the faithful and true witness, the beginning or the source, the originator of all creation. 
And I think at least one reason he would do that is to remind this church that they can trust what he's about to say because he's gonna lay a pretty, a pretty heavy diagnosis on them and so they ought to listen carefully because Jesus knows his stuff. So what, what does he tell them? What's the condition? Well, here it comes. Verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. So... Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Yeah, now this is, this is a bit shocking and, and interesting because all the other churches, unlike Laodicea, they, all have, they have some mention of false teaching, immoral conduct, uh, or enduring persecution. Laodicea has nothing of that apparently that's at least not that's mentioned in this letter and yet they receive the harshest rebuke or what seems like the harshest rebuke of of all the churches. Jesus says I am about to spit you or spew you or as the New King James Version unflinchingly and accurately translates it vomit you out of my mouth. Okay, so that's not good, right? Why, why would Jesus want to vomit a church out of his mouth? What would make, I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about. What would make him say such a thing? I'm going to vomit you out. What would make him feel such disgust? Well, apparently he says that it's the lukewarmness of this church. They are neither hot nor cold. So what does that mean? Uh, as Ken Keithley mentioned last week, it seems like much of the language that Jesus uses in communicating with these churches is like insider language, cultural references that they would have understood and grasped and felt the weight of immediately. So Laodicea was, they were a wealthy city. They had a lot going for them. They were on a major interstate trade route between their western coast and then into Asia. But one thing they did not have was good water. Archaeology seems to show that they had to pipe their water in through aqueducts from a few miles away. So by the time it ran through the pipeline and made it to the city and you could get it out of the ancient Roman tap, it felt a bit like drinking from the garden hose, you know, that's been sitting out in the yard for a couple hours too many, or taking a sip of that water bottle that you forgot had been sitting in your car all morning on a hot day. You know, you take a sip and it's like, whoa. And we've all had some sort of experience like this, right? You put something in your mouth and you realize you've got to spit that out. Like you will not be swallowing this, whatever it is. It's revolting and it's got to go. And so you just hope that nobody's watching as you try to find, you know, a, a, a desperately search the area for a place to do what you got to do and get that thing out of your mouth. So apparently that's the reaction of Jesus to this church's lukewarmness. He's preparing to spew them out if they don't change something. But we're still wondering, right, what does it mean to be lukewarm exactly? Because that, that does not sound good. Uh, some commentators point out that lukewarm water is essentially useless. Not a lot you can do with it. As my friend Ben Merkel likes to say, you can breed mosquitoes with lukewarm water. Right? Not much else. Uh, neighboring cities had hot springs. Neighboring cities had cold springs, both of which are helpful. But the lukewarm water of Laodicea would be mostly good for nothing. So perhaps then this means the church had become useless to Christ in some way. Uh, and then others emphasize that lukewarmness implies indifference, complacency, apathy. This church was not 
unfamiliar with or cold to the message of Christ, but neither were they really passionate or deeply interested in the things of God anymore. So their love and service had become perfunctory or apathetic and half-hearted. And it can seem at first glance that this seems a bit of a stretch, that Jesus would say something like, I'd rather you just not be part of the church at all than to be lukewarm. But I don't think it's all that crazy for him to say. I think he's trying to shock them into paying attention and to stop playing the middle. So to use an example that maybe some of my students here can appreciate, uh, let's just say that you are a, a young man, you're a high schooler, and you are dating a young lady, and this young lady really likes you, and you really like her, and you have so much fun together, you know, doing all the things there are to do in Wake Forest. But then one day she tells you, you know, you're really great, but I think I'd actually like to date Billy for a while. My apologies to any Billys here. I know you're all great people. I don't mean to make you the bad guy. I just, I had to pick a name, so sorry. Uh, but let's say that you in the story, you're a rather mature fellow for your age, high schooler that you are, and you say, sure, no big deal. If you want to date Billy, you know, that's fine. I get it. But then the next week, she comes back to you, and she says, you know, I really made a mistake going out with Billy. I want to be with you. And of course, you really like the girl, so you say, okay, great. And then a couple more weeks go by and she says, you know, I'm not sure that I gave Billy a real chance. He's a sweet guy and, you know, I think maybe we're going to go out again. And let's just say that you're like the most laid back cat on the block and you're like, okay, cool, sure, whatever. Um, then wouldn't you know it, another week goes by and she's back and she says, yeah, I'm definitely breaking up with Billy. You are way more fun than he is. But then later, one of your bros uh, snaps snaps you a picture of her and Billy hanging out at the Dairy Depot again. Okay, at this point, laid back, mature high schooler that you are, what are you gonna say? Right, you'd be like, girl, you can date Billy or you can date me, but you can't have it both ways. You gotta make up your mind. Right, or to put it more strongly and more seriously in the words of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Or as a wise man once told me, it's hard to stand in two boats, at least for very long. So you see in the gospels, I mean, Jesus, he's able to make some progress with the tax collectors and the harlots, but the empty religiosity of the Pharisees and scribes makes him sick and he will have none of it. And to the church's shame, perhaps more damage has been done to the cause of Christ here and around the world by half-hearted nominal churchgoers than by all the persecutors and heretical movements of our past. I mean, how many of us personally know someone who's currently unwilling to even consider Christ because of their experience with the church and with Christians? Uh, the great British pastor Charles Spurgeon's words are, are cutting here. He describes what non-Christians see when they see a lukewarm Christian. He says, they see a man who says he's going to heaven, but who's only traveling at a snail's pace. He professes to believe there is a hell, and yet he has tearless eyes and never seeks to snatch souls from going down into the pit. They see before them one who has to deal with eternal realities, yet he is but half awake one who professes to have passed through a transformation so mysterious and wonderful that 
that it must be true. If it is true, a vast change in the outward life as the result of it. Yet, they see him as much like themselves as can be. He may be morally consistent in his general behavior, but they see no energy in his religious character. And perhaps some of you are here today and you came to church with a friend or just to visit, but you don't claim to be a Christian. And this totally resonates with you. You're like, yeah, that's why I don't want to become a Christian because I've known too many Christians that just don't seem any different. And if they are different, they don't seem different in a good way. And I suppose, you know, that's a fair critique that you're turned off by Christians that don't live in accord with what they say they believe. Uh, But this interesting thing is Jesus agrees with your critique. He shares your disgust. So you and Jesus actually agree that a middling disinterested religious facade is deplorable. But part of the reason this upsets Jesus is because our hypocrisy might prevent you from coming to him. And it'd be a real shame if you allow such a thing to keep you from the one you need most. John Piper sums up the problem in Laodicea well. He says, Jesus' indictment against this church is that they are half-hearted in their relation to him. They do not have the fervor and warmth and zeal of a true lover of Christ, nor are they outright unbelievers who flatly reject Jesus and make no pretense of faith. They are halfway in between. Christ has a moderate influence on their lives. They are not uninfluenced by the Lord, but neither do they go overboard nor get very excited about the creator of all. In relation to prayer, it would be safe to say they probably pray at meals and pause for two or three minutes at bedtime, but they do not burn with a desire for more of God. They do not go hard after him in the secret place. They do not fling wide the door and welcome him into the innermost places of their emotions, but they keep him just outside the door and do their business with him coolly, lukewarmly, and through the mail slot. Author C.S. Lewis adds his warning in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, as an older demon character, Screwtape uh, mentors this younger demon in how to tempt a Christian. He says, make him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not perhaps a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can get him once, get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. You see the idea? Nice shadowy expressions. It was a phase. I've been through all that. And don't forget the blessed word, adolescent. So indeed, a good many things must be moderated, but love for Christ should not be included on that list. As Lewis said elsewhere, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. In 2009, uh, the BBC assembled a team of lexicographers, so like word people, people that study words, uh, that most resonated with English-speaking culture in the modern era for the first, from the first decade of the 2000s. And one of the words on the list, top 20, that resonate with us in our culture was meh, like M-E-H, meh. I guess that just means we've gotten too lazy to say I don't care, right? Because that's meh is like short for that. So it's that fascinating though. Top 20 words that have like influenced and described and reflect the culture at the beginning of this decade, meh. I mean, 
I'm afraid that is our temperature, perhaps, especially when it comes to God in the modern era. Not necessarily hate, but indifference. I don't know, when you think of God, does your heart say, meh? Now, before we move on, there's two potential misunderstandings I want to try to clear up quickly. First of all, I'm not saying that true Christians cannot have moments or even long seasons of spiritual dryness where you're, you're trying to remain faithful to God, but you just aren't feeling it. And the causes of that could be, could, could be any number of underlying issues. But that's a different diagnosis than lukewarmness. And spiritual dryness says, you know, I, I wish I felt more right now. I know I should feel something towards God, and I, I feel bad that I don't. I feel bad that I don't love him more. But lukewarmness says, uh, I think I'm good. I think I'm good right here. I'm not sure that I really need to be any more excited about spiritual things besides everyone who gets too serious about this. Jesus business always seems a bit over the top to me anyway. You see, that's a different thing from spiritual dryness. And then the second misconception I want to try to clear up is that I'm not attempting to tie hot or zealous for Christ to some particular mode of expression or personality, right? Ranges of emotional expression vary from person to person and from culture to culture. So we do well not to think that one is more spiritual than the other, right? For some of us to be moved with affection for Christ will be expressed through shouts of joy and raised hands, while for others, when we are moved with affection for Christ, it will mean deep silence, for others, perhaps a reverent tear, right? So like a bit more Irish blood flows through our worship leader, Daniel Cresswell's veins than mine. And so he's usually more expressive than me. And that's okay, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that if you are unmoved, disinterested, unaffected about Christ, then that should give you great pause, because whatever your fullest, deepest expressions of affection look like, should not those be spent on God? I mean, what, what do you look like when you are most interested or most enthused or most deeply moved about or by something? And do you ever bring those affections to God? So don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating emotional excess or sentimentality. I'm just asking, how real is God to you? And did Christ die simply to have his bride do his chores and run his business like a couldn't care less paid by the hour employee? Or did he die to enrapture her with his love? Isn't he the bridegroom of greatest passion who poured out his life's blood to ransom us so that we would actually know and actually enjoy his love? Indeed, the one thing God asks from us is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, Christians are to not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Fervent, hot. So how do you know if you or your church is becoming lukewarm? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, again, he kind of takes off the gloves here. So uh, just get ready for that. He says, they have prayer meetings, but there are few present, for they prefer quiet evenings at home. When more attend the meetings, they're still very dull, for they do their praying very deliberately and are afraid of being too excited. They are content to have all things done decently and, and in order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. 
They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church if the chief quality of pillars be to stand still and exhibit no motion or emotion. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. Ministers don't get a pass here either. Everything is done in a half-hearted, listless, dead and alive way, as if it did not matter much whether it was done or not. Things are respectably done, the rich families are not offended, the skeptical party is conciliated, and the good people are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as to doing them with all your might, soul, and strength, the Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. But they are not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or reject the gospel altogether. So, Their condition was lukewarmness. It is good to stop and reflect. Could it be ours? Could it be ours? But in order to correct the condition, they needed to look a little deeper than just these symptoms. And so like a good doctor, Jesus shows them the cause of their condition. They have a condition and then a cause. Look at verse 17. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Laodicea had apparently become so wealthy that even after they were essentially destroyed by an earthquake, they refused the aid of the Roman Empire in rebuilding their city. It's like, who does that? You know, can you imagine North Carolina turning down federal aid after a hurricane? Be like, nah, we're good, man. But Laodicea says, No thanks, we've got this. And they rebuilt it quite well. Their city had an impressive gymnasium, temples, and not one, but two ancient uh, amphitheaters. Most of these ancient cities might have one. Uh, Laodicea, even though they're not that large of a city, they had two amphitheaters. Like, we don't even have two theaters in Wake Forest. We are about to get two Chick-fil-A's though, so. (laughs) So there's that. their attitude then is summed up by Jesus, and maybe sometimes this could be ours too with, with all that we have. I don't need a thing. You see, Jesus is diagnosing them with affluenza, and I did not make that term up. If you know me, you know I love a good pun, but that's not me. There's a term popularized in the late 1990s. Uh, describing feelings of boredom, lethargy, overload, and anxiety that seem to accompany living in a culture of great wealth and surplus. So it's just, I mean, the Bible's not the only place making this connection between affluence and spiritual apathy. Now, my point here is not that wealth or living in a wealthy society unavoidably or automatically leads to lukewarmness. Money is an incredible and helpful gift that we can use to provide for our families, to bless others, and to cultivate and enjoy the world we live in. So don't misunderstand me here either. Wealth is not in and of itself a bad thing. But material prosperity can many times lead to spiritual apathy. It can create the necessary conditions in the body for this disease to thrive. So how does that happen? Back to verse 17. You say, I'm rich, I don't need anything, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, 
Material wealth can deceive us if we're not careful by removing a sense of desperation from our lives. When we have like pretty much everything we need physically, we can forget that we still have deep and urgent spiritual needs. And so Laodicea had become blind to their true condition. They went into the doctor thinking they looked like this. Ryan, thanks dude. (laughs) That was just a little dramatic pause. When in fact on the inside they looked like this. They walked into the doctor's office thinking they were perfectly healthy. When in fact, if left untreated, they had a terminal disease. As Paul Tripp says, you and I like to think that no one has a clearer, more accurate view of ourselves than we do. We look at ourselves and we think we're okay, but we are far from okay. So how'd they get so confused? How'd they get so far off in their self-assessment? Well, their, their level of daily comfort and prosperity seems to have prevented them from being able to honestly evaluate their spiritual condition. For them, it was just all good in the hood. And they had lost any sense of desperation, and so they were perfectly contented, not needing a thing. Uh, New Testament professor Simon Kistenmacher, I think, puts it so well. He says, to not have need of anything is inconceivable for the true believer who depends on God every moment, day and night, for food and drink, home, shelter, clothing, protection, spiritual nourishment, encouragement, comfort, love, joy, happiness, and numerous other blessings. To be self-sufficient is the height of spiritual arrogance, for faith and trust in the Lord no longer function. And to quote Spurgeon one last time, he says, such a church will be left to its fallen condition to become wretched. That is to say, miserable, unhappy, divided, without the presence of God, and so without delight in the ways of God. So, how's your sense of desperation these days? Do you sense it? Do you sense a need for God? For others? Are you able to receive help when you need it? Are you able to admit your needs to others and ask for help when you need it? Or are you the John Wayne, you know, kind of person that we so value independence and self sufficiency in our society? I mean, we loathe having to depend on someone else. And this can make us blind. It can make us blind to the fact that we are always dependent. We need God. And this is one reason that we can, we can still give thanks and should give thanks even during our sufferings, our disappointments, and our failures because they have the ability to rekindle our desperation and remind us of our need for God so we can still give thanks in our suffering because it can be for us an affluenza vaccine. So then, if their condition was lukewarmness and indifference, and if the cause of that condition was self-sufficiency and a lack of any sense of desperation, then what should be the cure? And it seems to me that Jesus' treatment plan here has about five components, five components to this plan or five ingredients to his plan. We'll find the first one in verse 18. He says, I counsel you then, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich 
and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Laodicea was, they were well known for a few things and they actually get mentioned here in the passage. Uh, First of all, a wealthy banking center where upper class Romans could always count on being able to invest their money or cash in their notes. It was a banking center. And then secondly, a booming fabric industry from a famous black wool that was produced in Laodicea. They were the black wool producers of the region. And then third, there was a medical school and a pharmaceutical center of sorts where they developed eye and ear ointments from mineral deposits nearby. So when Jesus gives this prescription of buying gold, clothes, and eye salve from him, he's speaking their cultural language again. And I think that what he's saying to them is that the first phase of the cure for lukewarmness is that you must buy from me what you've been trying to buy from the world. You must buy from me what you've been trying to buy from the world. In our context, he might say, dear Wake Forest and Raleigh, you think that your skyscraper banks and economic outlook will ensure your security, but I can give you real wealth, wealth that will not fade and will not spoil, You think that your Nike kicks or your Armani suits will give you status? I can give you clothes that give you a status like you've never known. A status before God that you don't have to earn and you don't have to prove. You think LASIK eye surgery from Duke Hospital will give you sight? I can heal your eyes in such a way that you can see and understand what matters most. Buy from Jesus what you've been trying to buy from everywhere else. True security, true status, true insight. And Jesus echoes here the voice of God given in the Old Testament book of Isaiah where God pleads, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good delight yourselves in rich food incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live you'll hear this sort of thing again at the end of the book of revelation the last chapter the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price see it's always so simple with jesus You just come to him to find everything you need. As one commentator put it, this is strange, wonderful gospel buying. We buy for nothing what costs Christ everything. And therefore he can offer it without price. Because for our sake he became poor. For our sake he was stripped naked. For our sake he was thrust into darkness so that we could have true wealth, true status, true insight as to what really matters. So go to Jesus and ask him to give you what you've been trying to get from everywhere and everyone else. But now Jesus gets even more tender with his cure. Uh, He kneels down, as it were, takes off his stethoscope, uh, removes his exam gloves, and whispers to us these words, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, repent. 
You see, he's not just playing doctor anymore. He's speaking as a father. Jesus once again echoes the words of the Old Testament. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. This is the second part of the cure and it's so, so important. Don't miss it. If you want to be healed from lukewarmness, you need to understand that God delights in you. That even when you have failed to delight in him, he still delights in you. That's why he uses this language of those whom I love, I discipline. So I, I still have like a long way to go as a dad. I have a three-year-old and a 10-month-old. So literally, I have like a long way to go. And I am already tired. So, um, but I, I got some good parenting advice when we had our first child, a son. Uh, and it was that every time you have a major disciplinary moment with your children, which is mostly my son these days. I think I mentioned that he's three. So every time or almost every time, I hope, that we have a significant moment of discipline, I tell him that I love him. And I, I, I used to say, and I started to catch myself and correct myself, I'd say, I love you, but, <laughs> you know, here's what's coming next. Uh, and now I say, because I love you, I must discipline you, because I love you. And so then some of our moments of discipline have become the most tender moments that I've had as a father. And usually the more stern the rebuke, the more tender the affirmation of love. And that is exactly what's going on with Jesus here. He expresses his love to us as a motivator for them to be zealous and change their ways. So if you recognize the discipline of God upon your life for your apathy towards him, then you must also feel the tender delight of the father that is still upon you. Otherwise, he would not discipline you. But knowing the deep love of Christ, even in your unworthiness, this is what has the power to break your apathy. So then Jesus goes even further from doctor to father to friend and says, verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now notice for a second where Jesus is in relation to this church at this point. He's saying, I'm, I'm outside of the church, knocking, calling. And even though he's been spurned and ignored by them, he still knocks and he still calls out. I mean, you know, at your house, you may or may not open the door to someone randomly knocking, right? But if you hear the voice, you know who it is and you know what they want. So what is it that, that Jesus wants? This is his third part of the cure. He wants our fellowship. He just wants to sit and talk. So you have to remember that this, uh, he'll come in and, and I'll eat with him and he'll eat with me is given in a Middle Eastern context. The speed of eating in that place and in that day is a little different from ours now. You know, a meal shared at the end of the day then would have involved good, uh, wholesome, unhurried and leisurely time together. Uh, Ashley and I last week uh, were able to get away with a couple in our church for dinner and you, you know I realized it's I can't remember the last time that we had an unhurried leisurely no rush kind of meal it's always you know we're eating quick we do the next thing we're putting our kids to bed but it was it was really nice to sit and enjoy a meal together 
you sit and talk and laugh together, solve problems together, you tell stories. And this is what Jesus is after here. Unhurried, leisurely, meaningful fellowship with you. So this is the third part of his cure. If God apathy marks your, your life right now, then perhaps you need to open up your schedule to Jesus and sit and talk with him in an unhurried, protected, focused manner. Is there a place or time that you can find that? It's important enough to rearrange your schedule, to go on a walk, to sit under the stars. If you will make it a priority to spend time with Jesus, it won't be long before your zeal for him is rekindled. And a good time to do that is when our church gathers to pray. Let us help one another spend time with Jesus in an unhurried, focused manner. The first Sunday of the month, in the evening, we gather for prayer. Wednesdays on lunch break, if you're in town and able to take a few minutes to swing by the church, we pray together from 12 to 1 on Wednesdays. So now the last two phases, the last bit of the cure. And this involves both a promise and a cost. So you see, there's, there's something, of a, something of a carrot that Jesus holds out to this church, uh, given in verse 21. He says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 21. Okay, so what is this all about? The one who conquers, grant to sit with me on, on my throne. What's this all about? Well, really, this, this is a pretty insane promise that Jesus is making here. He's promising to those that overcome their apathy, they will not, they will not be spewed out of his mouth, but they will get to sit with him on his throne, which I'm guessing is like a pretty big throne, plenty of room, kind of a couch throne, but I, I think the point here is that those who overcome their lukewarmness and love God, they will get to do the thing that we were all created to do in the first place, reign over the creation with Christ in a new creation. Those who love God will rule and manage and care for the world alongside him, sitting on his throne with him. And so this is the fourth phase of the treatment program. Jesus seeks to overwhelm their apathy with a vision of awe. And come back next week because that is what chapter 4 is all about. But if there's a carrot, then there's also a cost. Uh, as is usually the case with medical treatment, there's some sort of pain involved. And it's no different here. I mean, what is Jesus referring to when he says that he also overcame and sat down with his father? What's, what's he referring to? Hebrews 12 Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how is it that Jesus overcame and sat on his father's throne? He had to endure a cross. He had to bear shame. It was not comfortable. It was not easy. So then, what will it require from a church that seeks to overcome their lukewarmness and to sit with Christ on his throne? The same. Leaving lukewarmness will not be comfortable, but it will be worth it.
as we end our time together, uh, even as the worship team comes up, we're going to give you just a few moments of silence to be still, to reflect on the preached word, and to let the good doctor speak into your life and to listen to him as he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So if during the song uh, you'd like to come forward for a prayer or if you'd like to have a conversation with me or some of our other church leaders, you're always free to do that. But let's take a few moments now in silence before God to listen to him as to the condition of our souls. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.